This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is World Changing Ideas, and I'm Amelia Hempel. This season, we're bringing you stories from change makers and innovators around the world, all working to create a better future. So if you're on the hunt for some solutions to the world's problems, then you've come to the right place. I was thinking over the holidays, you know that time where everyone's kind of had enough of each other and you've eaten too much, you're a bit overtired. The easiest way to bring people together is by playing some kind of game. You can have different values, you can be different ages, but as long as you understand the mission of the game and you play by the rules, you can all work together, creating strategies, winning and losing, getting competitive. Play is actually something that's helped us evolve as a species. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. You're enhancing your cognitive, social and physical skills while having a good time. And we're wired to play games. So combine that built-in human behavior with the internet, technology and computer graphics, and you get the mind-blowing growth of the video game industry. In 2022, roughly 3 billion people, or one in every three people in the whole world, regularly play computer games. That's on their phone, computer, or some kind of gaming console. Just think about those levels of attention and engagement and influence, the power that can have on a global scale. Analysts predict that the video game market will bring in over $200 billion in 2024. So what's the world-changing idea here? How could me playing Candy Crush on my phone help save the environment? We can make an impact on climate change by teaching players new skills and new knowledge. The audience is there, right? The audience is already there waiting, right? They're playing every single day, 3.5 hours a day, they're playing video games. It's on us to try to figure out how do we bring solutions to that audience that's ready to take it in, and then how do we measure that? Rosemary Mann leads video gaming strategy for the Ash Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center in the U.S. We look around the world at the most vulnerable people on the planet and the ways that we can reach them. Our goal is to basically give them the skills and knowledge that they need to protect themselves from climate change. Their goal is to reach a billion people with these climate resilience solutions by 2030. And I started to think about every day, every night, billion people. How do you reach a billion people? But not just how do you reach them? How do you reach them and then measure that what you're reaching them with, the information you're reaching them with, uh, is measurable? Man was invited to an event at Full Sail University, one of the top video game design schools in the country, where she heard a lecture about how many people around the world were playing video games every day. That statement just blew my mind. And I said, well, I only need a billion of those. And I'm going to find out how we could work with the gaming industry. 
But how do you transform gameplay into real-world action and infuse information into the game that people actually remember after they stop playing it? First, she needed to get a sense of how the gaming audience was thinking. With the help of game developer Unity and Yale University, she conducted a study. And the results were amazing because everyone who answered the survey felt that climate change is real. We have to do something about climate change now. We have to act together. And I think that acting together is what brings the social cohesion in such a greater way. Next, her team came up with a strategy to work with the gaming industry in three different ways. First, collaborate with the big budget franchises known as the triple A's. The big companies, um, Fortnite, Call of Duty, Minecraft, you know, they reach 200 million people, 300 million people at a time. And we build resilient solutions and resilient storylines into those games. Next, they work with smaller indie game developers by giving them seed money to program solutions into those games before they're launched. And finally, they hold workshops for leaders in the industry to help them understand and integrate the actual data behind these climate solutions. So the hope is that they can then build better, more evidence-based games. Academics are looking at this. The industry itself is looking at this. The International Game Developers Association, they're all looking at it, where measuring that action piece and giving people the the power to, to build their own communities and their own advocacy about climate change, get them out to vote. Mann explained how a game can teach all kinds of different lessons, like how to construct a sustainable settlement, fight pollution in your community, or escape from a natural disaster event. Lessons we might all need in the future. She said the gaming scenarios can also build empathy with people who are actually going through these situations in real life. There are all these technologies that are at our fingertips right now. How do we use those not just for players, but how do we use those technologies for policymakers? How do we bring world leaders into an immersive experience, almost as decision-making tools, to make better decisions around climate change? At this past COP27, Mann and her team built a prototype device that gave leaders an immersive experience of different weather events like hurricanes or sea level rising. And then they experienced an opportunity to make choices. What choices could they make to have a better world, right? For Miami to be a safer and healthier place to live. And based on their choices, we showed another scenario in VR of what the city would look like with all the choices that they made. And it was the hit of of the COP this year. People loved it. Other global organizations are working on positive gaming solutions too. The UN runs a yearly event called the Green Game Jam, which encourages video game studios from all around the world to get creative, bringing attention to conservation campaigns and inviting users to donate to climate change causes. So what kind of in-game activism are we actually talking about here? So as you're going through the levels of the game, 
it will tell you to plant a tree, right? Plant a tree, plant a mangrove, preserve the shoreline. Um, how important are coral reefs? How important are new building structures that are built with better materials, right? Cooling materials, painting your roofs white, using solar, riding your bicycle, using electric cars. And Rosemary Mann says there have been some effective results too. A new video game called Alba, A Wildlife Adventure, revolves around a young girl trying to stop the construction of a resort on this beautiful Mediterranean island. Every time that the game's downloaded, some of the money's then donated to tree planting initiatives. So far, over one million trees have been planted and three habitat locations have been restored. The Green Jam event in 2021 generated 60,000 pledges signed for the UN campaigns and raised $800,000 in donations to different environmental charities. Some of the ideas they came up with were things like city building strategies where you can reduce the environmental impact of the structures you build, or in-game challenges like radical recycling and protecting wildlife species. So that all sounds great, but the majority of these gamers are all pretty young. According to researchers, American schoolchildren spend an average of 13 hours a week playing video games. I mean, shouldn't parents be pushing their kids to get outside, run around and maybe do things in actual nature rather than playing in a video game version of nature? Rosemary Mann says yes, but it's also more complicated than that. Kids should be outside. Kids should not be on a computer, but they're doing it anyway. So it doesn't matter that we don't like it or it doesn't matter that we don't want our kids doing it. Hands down, 3.5 billion people are doing it every single day. It builds friendships and relationships and social cohesion and that we are starting to build a really great library of research that shows that behaviors do change. So how do you measure that behavioral change? And do people's actions in a game world actually translate into real life? So we know within the game and with what we're building with the game developers, every step that the player takes within that game in order to win the game, you have to learn something. Let's use a hurricane, for instance. You have to have all your hurricane supplies. You need to have your batteries, your water, your food. Your, you need to build your toolkit to protect yourself from what's about to hit you, right? And so they do all of these things in the game, physically do them, gather them, store them, you know, put shutters on their windows. They look at sea level rise and how do I get out of my city? Where am I gonna go Um, for extreme heat, for instance? Where should I plant trees? If I'm gonna plant a tree for shade, why not plant a tree for shade that I also can get a piece of fruit from and feed my family. So these are all things that we think about as we're talking to the um, game developers who are actually building the stories. They also run surveys and forums to gather information. Did you plant a tree? Did you plant a kitchen garden? Did you vote for a candidate that believes in climate change? Who is your climate champion? On a scale of one to 10, do you think that climate is a real issue here? How do you protect your family? Are you prepared? But surely those who are gonna be hit the hardest by climate disasters don't have a few hundred dollars to spend on a laptop or games console. Gaming on a mobile phone is by far the most popular way to play games. So we believe that we can reach 
people through gaming, even in the most vulnerable communities, because they do normally have access to mobile phones. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I wanted to hear from one of the game designers working on the Resilience Projects. How do you create a fantasy game scenario that could have real-world impact? Chance Glasgow is a pretty huge deal in the gaming world. As one of the co-creators of the Call of Duty franchise, he knows a fair bit about building a fan base. Call of Duty has sold over 300 million copies. You know, after making one of the best, one of the biggest franchises in the world and working on that franchise for a, a long time, you know, now I just basically work on stuff that isn't only about, you know, making money, something that has some sort of positive impact. So he's joined the Rockefeller Resilience Center to help with their climate awareness mission. The video game scene was very different back when Chance first started playing. My first console was an Atari 2600. I was born in 1980. I had a Nintendo, had a big, you know, a lot of years where I'd be in between Nintendo and, and all the other consoles I didn't have. We didn't have a lot of money. Eventually got back into games through PCs. I ended up getting a PC for Christmas when I was a teenager and started really falling in love with what PCs could do with gaming because they had a lot more flexibility. There's a lot of things you could do on PC that you could not do um, on consoles. And so that kind of piqued my interest in making video games. He grew up in Florida and studied computer animation. After college, he got a job working on part of the Steven Spielberg Medal of Honor franchise. Then came Call of Duty. And then after that, I was just so burned out from you know working on the same kind of game for so long. I worked on World War II games for longer than America was in World War II. For Glasgow, gaming still felt like the right vehicle to teach people about potentially life-saving solutions. It's not like, say, TV or film where it's passive and you're just taking in information. Uh, you have to actually process information and make decisions. You have to solve problems. But the challenge was doing it in a way that felt authentic. No one wants a guilt trip experience that makes them feel powerless and depressed. And that game also probably wouldn't sell well. You know, there's certain game genres that are, I guess, a little easier to integrate some of these topics. For instance, like a survival game is going to deal with hunger. It's going to deal with hydration, right? It's going to deal with water. Garden Story is one of the projects we've granted money to. It's a very retro, Super Nintendo style of game. You know, you have some missions where you're trying to repair the infrastructure of a dam for your community. So you're learning that, okay, infrastructure for water is very important. You're, you're cleaning chimneys, you're healing... Um, these little vegetable citizens, because it's a game about being a vegetable in a vegetable community, you're healing them from air pollution. Another game they're working on is called Eco, which sounds like a cross between Minecraft, The Sims, and that movie Don't Look Up. Within the game, there's a meteor coming to destroy the planet. You've got 100 people playing on the same server, right? And uh, you want to destroy the meteor before it hits the planet. But as you're developing the technology to destroy the meteor, what happens is you start putting out CO2. You start putting carbon dioxide. And these things can, for instance, affect the sea level. So if you've built a bunch of homes on the coast within the game and you guys overpollute, the sea level rises and you've just destroyed your property. Then there's a game called Martial Arts Tycoon, where you've got to train a bunch of fighters to compete, but you're also having to contend with the effects of various heat waves and protect your fighters from the rising temperatures. 
They've incorporated the new heatwave naming and categorization system too. But now if it's like, oh, it's a category two heatwave and its name is Tiago, you better get the hell inside, you know, because you're going to be dehydrated. You're going to, you know, you don't want to stay outside too long. So who are the people actually playing these games? One pretty notable example is 35-year-old Uni Young. She's a cultural historian who's played over a thousand hours of eco. When you're launched into the world of eco, you are only but one person, with one first-person perspective looking outward. But after you get past the digging and the building and so forth, and you start interacting with people, that's when your horizon, that's when the meta game starts to expand exponentially. Young says playing the game and helping create an online community inspired her to run for local government. Richmond Hill needs new parks to accommodate for its expanding population. Let's make these parks worthwhile to become centers of sports and culture. Vote Uni Young for Ward 3 Councillor for a nicer, friendlier Richmond Hill. And Young still makes time to play eco. She said she plays 16 hours a day, and she's made a few observations. Too preachy, people won't listen. Too hard and people will leave. We need to keep them in the game and address the in-game issues without having them leave in frustration, thinking that it's unsolvable or it's too hard. One of the strange things and wonderful things I found is that European players tend to be more collaborative than American players in this respect. And oddly, the Marxist socialist players tend to be better role players and uh, better collaborators in a capitalistic society in-game as compared to people who are born and growing up in an actual capitalistic society. But her biggest takeaway is that the game simulates a real-world situation by drawing on a basic psychological premise. So similar in real life, we need to foster an environment where we uh, enlighten people to see from their first-person perspectives, after all, we can only see from this perspective, what the stakes are for us, and to have this develop into a practice or habit of real life. whether that is to protect the environment or to be more cooperative and collaborative with other people, uh, to trust in governments or to take part in the government in order to steer in our direction. So that works the same case for the health of not just the environment, but for our democracy as well. Gaming can be hugely helpful in teaching people about climate resilience or motivating them to change their behaviour. But the industry also has a lot of cleaning up to do when it comes to cutting down its own carbon footprint. And so when games get made, when games get played, when they get sold and you know shipped around the world to, to people, and then when we're done with them, when we throw out our discs, when we buy the newer console and, and toss out the old one, There are emissions all the way through that kind of production process. Ben Abraham is a climate consultant based in Sydney, Australia, and the author of Digital Games After Climate Change. He spent years researching how the gaming industry can become more green. The kind of devices we make, the the sort of like architecture of the chips gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The intensity of, of making those devices just kind of goes up and up and up. 
there's almost like no cap to it and there's no or very little pressure on companies to to make the most efficient use of of precious materials and resources like you know these metals but also energy of water he also took a deep dive into the impact of gaming e-waste he got some help from his university lab to run some scientific tests where basically they guillotined a little sample out of the the core like APU of a secondhand PlayStation 4 that I had. They dissolved it in a really strong acid and then blasted it with the really superheated stream of plasma. It atomizes all the contents of it. So I got a sample of all these precious metals that are inside that APU. So these have all been used in the construction of it. This is like, you know, the the stuff that makes the the PS4 do what it does. Um, It's all the computing, the logic, the the memory. And the list of materials inside that was staggering. It was like everything from, you know, the the basic kind of common metals we think of, like, you know, iron, silicon, of course, up to like really complex and, and rare metals. like ruthenium, I think there was things like galladium, and then there were like heavy metals and, and really toxic things in it too, like cadmium was in there, lead was in there, you know, nasty stuff that you don't want anywhere near you because it, you know, it's quite toxic and you don't want it in the environment. The UN estimates that gaming generates about 50 million metric tonnes of e-waste every year only 20% of which gets recycled. So most of that will get dumped in landfill. And then there's all the electricity needed for those high-intensity graphics and streaming. Another study suggests global gaming generates as much carbon dioxide as 5 million cars. So what's the answer here? Well, I guess the, the first step is that I would love to see is all games companies even just like reporting their own emissions, right? I mean, it sounds really basic, but like there are lots of games companies where there's no data. Are they even aware of the fact that they have a, a carbon footprint? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. And and making that public and disclosing that, I think that's a really important first step because you then put that in front of potential investors, you put that in front of the public, you put that in front of uh, researchers like myself, but also governments. And then we can actually maybe start to, to put a, a proper number on the, the overall you know, emissions footprint of the industry. If we can use games to inform players and, and shift public opinion to take action on climate, then yeah, sure. But where I, I have, I guess I'm, I'm concerned that that becomes the only thing that the games industry does. Because basically, if you're doing that while also emitting CO2, The left hand is not talking to the right hand. How can anyone take you seriously if you're still being a huge polluter? You know, if you're emitting tons and tons of CO2 and telling others not to, like, you've got to clean up your own act first. So I just think that those kind of interventions don't have any real legitimacy until the games industry has addressed that, you know, that part of its own issue. It's got to get its own house in order. Many gaming companies are starting to take action on these conversations. Marina Pissarros is the head of sustainability at Unity Technologies. If you're not a gamer, Unity is the biggest game engine, and it powers many of the world's most popular real-time 3D games. Think Pokemon Go, Monument Valley, or Call of Duty Mobile. So they have at least 
3.9 billion monthly users of games run by or created with their technology. Unity's been carbon neutral since 2020, after undergoing a company-wide overhaul and buying up over half a million dollars worth of high-quality carbon offsets. For games and the gaming industry, there's really two primary areas. The first is making sure that your own operations are decarbonized so that games are running on clean energy, that game studios are doing what they can to be good citizens um, from a, a climate change perspective. And then there's the content side. So how do we build knowledge and awareness and information and a desire to act uh, on the behalf of gamers? And then how can games actually support them to take meaningful action? A few years ago, Psaros joined forces with Conservation International and Vision 3 to create an immersive VR experience called Drop in the Ocean. I tried it out at New York Climate Week, and it's this amazing mixture of film, game, and a virtual reality world. So when you put on the headset, you're suddenly shrunken down and transformed into a tiny piece of plankton, so you can experience sea life from a different point of view. I believe that we cannot manage what we don't understand and that we won't protect what we don't love. And so Drop in the Ocean is for me the perfect example of how real-time 3D can build that ocean literacy. People who participate are immersed in a world that most of them have never experienced. They're able to interact with a whale shark and to literally be in the middle of the ocean plastic problem. And they're also able to do it together. It's a social experience. People were very engaged. And I think it's because so many of us are visual learners and, and we live in such a visual world now. It's amazing to see these concepts come to life literally all around you that you can interact with. When you're in the VR experience watching sea turtles, it definitely hits home that plastic trash in the ocean is really awful. But is this kind of immersive experience just going to give people more anxiety and climate disaster fatigue? I really do think that we have to grieve what we're losing and what we've already lost. And then we have to think about what kind of world we, you know, we want to make for the future. And there are so many different studios that use Unity and they're all taking different approaches in their games. On a more cheery note, Unity is also partnered with Western University in Canada, and they're using the augmented reality technology for interactive education too. So, for example, you can identify different kinds of VR sharks that are swimming around in front of you instead of just using a diagram printed on a page. Saros hopes that this kind of visual learning could replace things like zoos in the future. Using VR, you could still get an amazing up-close encounter with an animal, but it wouldn't have to be living in captivity. We know that climate change is already causing devastating losses to the places and the people and the species and the experiences that we love. And I think for many around the world, that can be very overwhelming and traumatizing, really, to confront that loss. And people just, you know, turn off. They want to turn away, try to ignore the situation that we're in. And I think that we can actually transform that fear and grief into knowledge and action. I think that that stitching together of our digital and real-world selves is really exciting for me.
Okay, that's all for our show today. I'm Amelia Hempel. We want to hear about the world-changing ideas going on where you are. Do you think video games are a problem or a solution? Let us know on Instagram or on TikTok. And please leave us some comments and reviews in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Wednesday. Our show is produced by Avery Miles, mixing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Joshua Christensen is our supervising producer, editorial oversight from deputy editor Kate Davis and senior VP of entertainment Scott Meebus. <laughs> <laughs>